I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey guys, it's Albert. We got a great show for you this week. Gresh is in for the takeaways. Our special guests will be helping us break down the trade deadline and also give us a feel for what it's like to get fired in the middle of an NFL season. Fabs is in with his DFS and fantasy picks for week nine. And as always, we wrap up with all of your questions in the six pack. Let's go. All right, welcome back in. It's the Albert Breer Show. Uh, crazy, crazy 24 hours in our country. We're not going to be talking a lot about that today uh, because this is a football show and we're going to give you guys a little bit of an escape here. We are in the middle of the NFL season, um, eight weeks down, nine weeks to go, a lot to get to, and we are going to bring in now for the takeaways, as we always do, my buddy Andy Gresh. Uh, Gresh, are you one of these people that stayed up all night or are you one of these people that like me, fell asleep on the couch and got his full seven hours of sleep. Uh, a little bit of both. I actually kind of dozed on the couch around, eh, I don't know, maybe 20 after one. You know, my kids kind of had to watch some of it for school. Uh, and they, oh, they learned- had to watch it for school. It was like an assignment for school. For uh, them, a huh? little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, let's jump into the football stuff, Crash. My first takeaway, it was actually supposed to be a big day in the NFL world, as usual, um, as we've mostly seen, I think, over the last decade or so. The trade deadline did disappoint. Not a ton of action. We had a few moves. Um, Avery Williamson getting traded from the Jets to the um, to the, the Steelers over the weekend. I think that's a significant thing for the Steelers. I'm having lost Devin Bush. Uh, the Titans have had some issues in their secondary. They trade for Desmond King from the Chargers. That could be a big piece for them going forward. But for the most part, some of the bigger names that you heard Bandy about didn't get traded. So my first takeaway, Gresh, this is going to be a harbinger of things to come in the NFL over the next couple of years. And the th- what I mean by that, the reason that the trade deadline was slow, a huge reason why, is because of the revenue shortfall that's going to happen because of everything with COVID and because they're playing in empty stadiums. And that revenue shortfall is going to call, I'll give you guys the quick version of this. That revenue shortfall is going to cause the cap to go down maybe by as much as $25 million next year. It could wind up affecting the cap in 2022 and 2023 as well. It's going to be an issue for teams as far as constructing their rosters over the next few years. So one of the problems over the last couple of days was, well, you know, this team may be selling this big name veteran. This team might be selling that big name veteran. The problem is that teams are looking at those guys and saying, okay, well, we can bring him in for this year. But now looking forward, he's got a big number after this year or he wants big money after this year. So we can't really justify doing that looking ahead I think this is the first thing that's going to be this is the this is the first effect that COVID-19 is going to have on the way you build your roster. The first big effect I think as far as the top of the roster. We've seen it with practice squads and stuff. Um I think it's going to happen in free agency to Gresh with that cap crunch creating a huge issue. You're going to have a flood of veterans getting cut. And so I think that that's going to kind of kill the market a little bit. And I think over the next few years, the value of draft picks going to go through the roof because that's your cheap talent. So I think what we saw 
it, you know, over the course of the last couple of days in regards to the trade deadline and the lack of action is just a signal of what's going to come over the next couple of years based on how teams are building um, their rosters. All right. So if you're, uh, if you're the GM of a team that was once really good and you're not very good now, but you've got some dead money sitting on your cap and you've got some easy moves that you can make to be able to clear more cap space. If you're an enterprising known for zagging when others zig general manager, like, oh, I don't know, say like Bill Belichick, who would love yeah. to rebuild pretty quickly. Are, are we going to find that it's bargain basement hunting season in free agency because be, yeah. there will be one team that, oh, well, you're normally worth 10 million teams are offering you five. Well, I'll give you six and a half and not meet it halfway, but I'll give you a little sweetener to try to recruit you and get you to come play for my organization for a year because I gave you just a little bit more than what everybody else was offering. Like, I wonder who the GMs are going to be or the teams that are going to be that are working in the middle of the market. Yep. That are going to say, okay, I I'm going to pick through all these veteran free agents. And there are certain ones that I'm sure teams would be willing to pay for. And, and the fact that no one at the trade deadline, looks at this and says, we need to go for it. Like if you're Seattle, yeah. you know, not not adding another piece. If you're Tampa, I know they've added a ton of pieces, but you, you can't tell me that with what went down on Monday Night Football, they couldn't use another corner. It's just really surprising to me, Bert, that some teams don't look at their capital a little differently within the season that they're in to capitalize on success. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean like, well, Tampa, look at what they did though, right? Like instead of trading for somebody, they held on to their draft picks because they know they're going to need them. Right. Because the cap, like they've got all those guys they're paying. So where's your cheap talent come from? It comes from the draft. And they went out and signed street free agents, right? Like they signed Leonard Fournette when he became available. They signed Antonio Brown when he became available. Like that's the way that they've sort of put this thing together now. And now going forward when, the, and you know, clearly their roster is going to look like those old Colts rosters over, you know, over the next couple of years where you've got these big numbers at the top and then you've got to draft well, because that's going to be the guts of your team. Like Tampa, like to their credit, did hang on to all of their draft picks. They didn't sell out to go and get somebody. I mean, the biggest trade really they made would be Gronk, right? And that but, was almost that, that was a middle round pick. But that's my point. They've loaded up on offense. Now you're looking at it and saying, man, if we had one more corner that could really right. cover, this really might make all this. Well, that's why. It. And that's why they need guys like yeah. That, that's why they need like guys like Antoine, Antoine Winfield, Carlton Davis, um, you know, Jamel Dean. Like guys they've drafted, Devin White, like the guys they've drafted, that's why they need those guys to come through. And if they go those guys do come through, like it looks like those guys have the potential to do. Yeah. I mean, man, like like I think like that Packer game was really a sign of of where they can go on the defensive side. So anyway, like that's the whole thing. Is like I think that this is sort of a, a sign of where things are going and that draft picks are gonna become more valuable. The veteran market's going to be saturated in the spring, and I think it's gonna make it hard for guys to make, you know, the big score in free agency. And you may, Gresh, even see some guys like, <clears throat> I think we saw it to some degree with Ronnie Stanley, and God bless him for taking that when he did because, yeah. <laughs> like, that was an ugly injury he suffered. But could Ronnie Stanley have gotten more if he had waited? Yeah, sure, probably. In this environment, is it smart just to take a big money contract like that? Probably, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, Bert, my first takeaway, um, it, it, it's not going to be real long. 
because when coaches are on the precipice of being fired or have made a case for themselves where they should be fired, normally the, the conversation happens pretty quickly. And you and I have talked. My theory is if you're the Jets, you leave Adam Gase in place. Leave him there. Make sure you get Trevor Lawrence. Then get rid of him in week 15 or 16 when you know it's all sewn up. And even then, they might have to ride out uh, having Adam Gase as the head coach there with the Jets to ensure they get the number one pick. Uh, but if you're Anthony Lynn, this can't happen. Uh, you can't blow four double-digit leads in a row, and mm -hmm. you can't lose a game on back-to-back -back weeks on pass interference calls in the end zone. And yep. Anthony Lynn, I do believe, is a defensive-minded head coach. And you no, offense. Uh, offense. So he's an offensive guy. So he should be able to drive home the point of don't commit P.I. because look at what happens. Either way, the guy ain't doing his job, and they lose back-to-back -back games to teams that they shouldn't, by the way, on pass interference calls in the end zone. You can't, you know, it's the old, uh, like, Mike Singletary. Like, he was a great talker, but he couldn't coach. You know, can't win with him, can't win the That's, yeah. uh, Anthony Lynn might be a great guy and a credit to the human race, but right now, his football team is blowing leads and they're making the same mistake in losing games. That's what bad coaches do. Yeah, I, I think, I actually think, like, if you look at the body of work with Anthony Lynn, I think he deserves, he if, if any coach deserves a mulligan, um, based on what they've been through. And he went through a move. He went through all, like, playing in a soccer stadium for three years. Um, I think he's done a good job on balance, Gresh, over the last four years. The problem that he's going to run into now is contractual, okay? He is he was, he was signed a four-year deal. He got a one-year extension. If he if the card if the Chargers were to bring him back and not touch his contract, he'd be going into a contract year next year. We all know that that's problematic. So in all likelihood, the Chargers are going to have to make a decision after this year on whether or not to give him a multi-year extension or cut the cord, just where they are contractually. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's a franchise that I think you know has financially, like like I think, I think it's probably hit them harder than most teams because they've got the relocation fee. Like there, there's a lot of debt that they've, that, that, that that franchise has to deal with. And, um, you know, it's going to be interesting seeing whether or not they make a play for, you know, like the, would they put feelers out over the next couple of weeks? Now, the one thing that's interesting about them, their schedule, Gresh, mm -hmm. Raiders, Dolphins, Jets, Bills, Patriots, Falcons, not a murderer's row. So I do think that there's the opportunity there for them to pull themselves off the map because there is talent on that roster. Here's the other thing too, Bert, that if say LA makes a move, will, will, will what happens with New York jets? If they get the number one pick in Trevor Lawrence, we know that we've got maybe the rookie of the year with the chargers. Yep. Do we now start looking to pair coaches and quarterbacks? And that's because sort of what I've working, thought about. Yeah. Isn't because it's working in air or at least it looks like right now it's working in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that part of it, I think is going to be really interesting because again, like there's a lot of pressure on teams to win in that window that you have the, your quarterback on his rookie contract. And so, you know, like that become, I think that's really become sort of a, a critical period of time for, um, for, for head coaches. Okay. My second takeaway, I, this is, this is going to sound crazy, Gresh. I think the Cincinnati Bengals are going to be feisty down the stretch. Mm -hmm. They beat the Tennessee Titans on Sunday. All right. And I'm telling you, Joe Burrow looks like a five-year veteran. And you start to talk to his coaches. I talked to Joe after the game 
on Sunday night and you start to recognize what the kid's doing. And I've had Zach Taylor say this to me a couple times over the last couple of months. He's not a rookie. He's not a rookie. He's not a rookie. And you see the way that he's kind of operating out there. And then you start to think about his story and everything that he went through and losing a quarterback battle at Ohio State and transferring to LSU and then getting thrown into the fire down there in the SEC on short notice. He didn't have spring ball at LSU, started that first year. And then what happened when everything got right around him at LSU where he broke every record in the book, and that might have been the greatest college offense of all time. I think the Bengals have a real one here. <laughs> like I think the Bengals have a real one. And I don't think that roster is devoid of talent either. I mean, that's one thing that I think people have sort of... Now, it's not to say they don't have holes. They could definitely use some, some help at the linebacker level. Their defensive line got old in a hurry. Their offensive line still needs help. But there is talent on that roster. And... I just I look at it. I look at the development of the relationship with with T. Higgins, the other rookie there. I look at what Joe Mixon, when he's healthy, and Gio Bernard bring to the backfield. I look at the development of the defensive backs. Like I just think, I think there's something happening there, and I think it's like another sign of maybe the power of the development of a quarterback. And I'll tell you what, Gresh, maybe you can speak to this because you've been on. You know, you, you played on. Uh, you played on teams in college and everything else, and you've you've seen the process. I I never played past high school, but I saw it to some degree too. The guy, like the C on his chest, means something, doesn't it? Oh yeah, he's a rookie. The C on his chest. I mean, I know they give that stuff to quarterbacks, but that C on his chest is a rookie. Like that says something to me too. Completely agree. And Joe Burrow has backed up the faith that his teammates have put in him in terms of him not only being the captain, but also they're they're never out of a game with a guy like that, or at least you don't feel like you're ever out of a game with a guy like that. And how many Bengals games have we watched over the last decade where by the third quarter you're like, well, these guys are toast. Let me turn this or go to the Fox game or wherever it is that you'd you'd flip over and watch a different football game. Uh, I'm thoroughly impressed with Joe Burrow. And, you know, this isn't, well, he's here, he's arrived. He's going to make mistakes. He's a rookie, but there are certain things that you see from him. And it, and Bert, I think a little bit of it to your point with, with look, he doesn't look like a rookie. He's not lost at the line of scrimmage. He's got moxie in the huddle. He's got people who believe in him. So I, I, I hope people don't take us literally and be like, well, he's arrived. No, but he has everything that you're looking for and the intangible, which is that guy walks in a room and people look and stop. And his teammates, I think, do that, too, because that's the way that guy carries himself. Absolutely. All right. Your second takeaway. Mine is, you know, uh, I don't know where Mercury Morris is right now in the (laughs) 1972 Miami. Right. But normally that, you know, that group gets together and whenever the last undefeated team is beat, they, you know, go down to some alligator factory or something like that. And who's in that crew? I guess Nick Bonacani, right? Like, I think he just passed away. Oh, but, that's right. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, you, it's Mercury Morris, uh, Larry Zonka. I'm trying to remember who the other, there was one other prominent player that was in there and dog on it. It's slipping my mind, but these guys all get together and have them some alligator nuggets and pop champagne corks and say, Hey, we're still best team ever. Well, at least in the regular season, I wonder if the Pittsburgh Steelers have an opportunity to go on a run here. You could argue that within the context of their schedule, they beat their two biggest challenges on the road 
last Sunday in Tennessee. And then, of course, or two Sundays ago in Tennessee and this past Sunday where they beat Baltimore. Now, look, is Pittsburgh a classic dominant team? No, they're not. They're not the wagon that the Patriots were in 07 or that the Dolphins were in 72. But when you look at the Steelers schedule at Dallas, come on now, Cincinnati, like you said, it'll be a feisty, tour. but yeah, they're feisty, not beating this. But they yeah. should be a, and Jacksonville. So that would get them to, in theory, 10-0. 10 and, and then they play Baltimore again, but they get and that's a Thanksgiving ball. night, which is going to be freaking awesome. It is. That'll be a <laughs> yeah. great battle if we're all, you know, up and awake to be able to watch it. If we're not tripped to fan out of our mind. Then you look in the month of December, Bert, Washington at Buffalo, at Cincinnati, Indianapolis, at Cleveland. There's a real chance that uh, there's the a path. Worst, the worst to, case to use a political term. There's a path. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Early polling says idiot sitting in his house talking to other idiots sitting in another part of his house says da da da. But I mean, in theory, what might be the to me the absolute worst case scenario for Pittsburgh right now is thirteen and three. Yeah, and I'll tell you what. Like I, I so there are a couple things. I think number one, having that like. It's fun to watch them again because that defense is fixed, and it yeah. took forever. It took forever, pass. dude. They got like, like, like that group, that group, like that they like you know. And we're talking so long ago now with you know Farrier and Harrison and Paul Amalu and Ike Taylor and Brett Kiesel and Aaron Smith and Casey Hampton, like that great group. Like they like the, and, and for the first time in forever, they weren't able to cycle new guys in. You know, like it was like the first failure of that system. I, I think maybe since like the seventies where they weren't able to cycle like really great defensive players through. And now they've got that. Like, so now it's like, it's TJ Watt, it's Bud Dupree. It's, uh, you know, obviously the older guys, Cam Hayward and Stefan Tuitt have been mainstays there. Devin Bush, they go and replace him with Avery Williamson, which I think is a really solid move. Minka Fitzpatrick looks like a stud. So, you know, there's that piece of it. Here's the other one. Mike Tomlin. I like, I, I, I have such an appreciation for him now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and the job that he's done, because I think this year demanded a certain type of consistency, a certain type of leadership from a head coach, right? And a certain, a certain ability to make sure that everyone had their crap together, right? And I think this is such a good example of it. Have we heard anything about there being any issue with any Steeler with COVID? Or, like, like, and I'm not saying like, you can't just get it from bad luck. Right. But has this like I don't know if I've even heard a steal or bring it up. Like I, I would agree. I don't I don't remember <laughs> hearing any of that from them out of that. I, right? I don't think I've I don't think I've heard anything. Like the 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 biggest thing I think I've heard I've heard COVID related from them was like when Tomlin like I think Tomlin like wore a shirt like that said he appreciated all the other pe- the people in the building that were helping to make sure that everything was right. Like that was the one story I can remember, and that was a positive story. Like I just think this year, it's interesting because I think this year demands like strong leadership, discipline, like and I like I just to me it's like it's such a shining example of what's really important in a head coach. You know what I mean? Yeah, they all preach structure, but how many of them are actually able to get their players to right. execute or think about the structure with which it only matters if you can get people to do it. That's right. right? Like you can tell people whatever you want to tell them. It only matters if they're following you. <laughs> That's right. And those those guys they follow him. They follow Tomlin, and so I think it's like to me like it's just a great example of that. 
Uh, by the way, the greatest Pittsburgh Steeler moment was after the 1995 AFC championship game when Greg Lloyd was presented with the conference championship trophy, looked at whichever pipsqueak there looked really tiny next to him in the post game and yelled an F-bomb right into the microphone. And I saw literally the pee go down the leg of the broadcaster <laughs> as they were standing there. Because if anybody has ever met Greg Lloyd, you understand that probably even at this point, that guy's a BF. That, that, that defense had some maniacs on it. Kevin Green. Oh, like that, Le- was, that was. Levon, Levon Kirkland. There you go. The <laughs> 285 pound middle <laughs> linebacker. Now that now coaches will look at him and be like, oh, you're on the nose, buddy. You're not running <laughs> yeah. around. Yeah, I mean that crew of linebackers was freaking frightening. Yeah, so, so yeah, like I, I'm, I'm with you though. This looks like a 14 and two yeah. uh, Steeler team. All right, on the my third takeaway goes to the other side of the ledger, and you know, Gresh, I, I kind of like had this. I guess it sort of almost became my own personal cliche about Tom Brady the last few few years in talking about the Patriots, and I would say Tom Brady doesn't create margin for error. Tom Brady is the Patriots margin for error. And I think now we're seeing sort of where over the last 20 years, superior coaching and superior quarterbacking has just been able to mask every single issue they ever had, right? Like every single little thing you, you draft the wrong right tackle, you sign the wrong corner in free agency, every single little thing could be covered up by quarterbacking, and coaching, historic quarterbacking and coaching. Now the quarterbacking part of the equation is gone. And I think when, when we see the Patriots run into well-coached operations, like the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> like, and that's, and, and I think you saw it with Kyle Shanahan, who I think is, a, I still regard as a top five coach in the NFL, right? You saw what happened there. And then last week, like Sean McDermott, who I think is probably top 12 or so right now, and who's done a great job rebuilding that Buffalo organization. And you see like that, that Buffalo team didn't play very well, but was still able to outlast the Patriots because the Patriots couldn't take advantage of their mistakes the same way they used to be able to. And so, you know, this is definitely a product of a poor drafting over the years of mistakes that they made building that roster of mortgaging all of that different stuff. Um, but I think the biggest piece of it is, that margin for error the Patriots have ain't what it used to be. So I think it starts there and then it goes to the draft. And then after that, I think everything else, like everything else that Bill complained about is sort of like you can't manage it the same way because you didn't draft well and you don't have the margin for error anymore. I, I think yes and no. Like, you know, the draft thing, the, the narrative on the draft is very interesting now because they would, they had a veteran roster. Like there were years where they would have draft picks and you'd be like, okay, how, how many of these dudes are really have a chance to make the team maybe the guys in the top three rounds and after that it's you hope you're finding undrafted free agents but to me there's a way that bill belichick always went about this number one he always shopped in the bargain bin if you go all the way back to when they won the first super bowl the crop of free agents oh, that yeah. i brought in that was the bumper crop group of mid-level veterans. It was like Vrabel and like David Patton and like deeper than that. It was like Joe Andrewsy and Mike yeah. Compton. And if you look at, you know, it was let me plug. Yeah, you're like plugging the the holes in the dam, right? And 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 all of a sudden it was holding water and it worked to where 
you had a guy like a what a tie law in the yeah. Super Bowl with a pick six. But that gets to the other part of the point, Bird. I think that what young players they did like, they were always able to on the whole pair them with veterans. Like for example, yeah. if and and by the way, I think a part of this year is that mix has been shifted a little bit. It'd be and I know Kyle Duggar's dinged up. It'd be great if Kyle Duggar got to sit and learn. But a part of the reason he had to play is because Adrian. Well, yeah, but who? But how did that work? Phillips ended up taking a role that Chung might have had, and he and and now Adrian Phillips is standing beside a guy in Jawan Bentley, who would probably be a specialized player if Dante Hightower were out there on the field. See, I think when you look deeper at it, for some of the younger guys, there were veterans there to kind of hold their hand. So that when you played young guys early, it was specialized. I only need you to do this on third right. down. And they started to learn the ways and they grew from there. I think the mix has been disrupted a little bit. And the only spot on the football team where you could, in theory, have the old Bill Belichick way of doing things is the offensive line. Because yeah. you got someone like Tooney, you got someone like Andrews and Mason. They can bring those other young guys along. I, other than a corner, I don't know if there's anywhere else on the Patriots roster where they would have the veteran who's put the flag in the ground that Bill can say, go learn from that guy. Right, and that and that was like, and I think that sort of speaks to the, it, that's part of drafting too though, Gresh. You know, like they should have right now have, like, like, and I know what you're talking about with the really young guys, but where are the third and fourth year guys that they should have been developing, well, right? And, and that's the thing. And it's and interesting because those are the dudes who like Trey Flowers hit, Dietrich right. Wise didn't. But Dietrich Wise is still kind of around. Uh, he's playing his like what final year on the rookie deal, whereas Trey Flowers hit Powerball and he kind of moved and that's, on. But I think that that's sort of what you're dealing with. And and again, like like I think if you look back at their Super Bowl team, the first one of the second iteration of the Dynasty 2014, and I think I've been over this in the podcast before. But you look at it, and it's almost like they had like a miniature farm system, right? You had Revis and Browner at corner, Logan Ryan and Malcolm Butler coming up behind him. You had Sebastian Vollmer at right tackle, Marcus Cannon coming up behind him. You had Shane Vereen as your third down back, caught a million balls in that Super Bowl. James White coming up behind him. Like you had all these individual positions where there was an older veteran and a young guy coming up behind him. And by that time that veteran got to year three or year four, now all of a sudden that guy was playing full time and you don't have that anymore. Yeah, I, I think losing high. This was the first game this week, Bert, watching the Patriots quickly where I was like, ooh, they miss Hightower and Chuck. Yeah. That yeah. would have been a Dante Hightower game. In Buffalo. And finally, and, you know, again, tis the political season. Uh, let me make it perfectly clear here. To all of the media companies, to all of the blue check marks who now, like, journalism used to be, back in my day, son, <laughs> journalism used to be you didn't let your opinion out. You were yeah. factual. You were a reporter. <laughs> that is gone now. Are you kidding me? Right. We get everybody's thoughts on everything now. Even people who are writing stories on people, it's the, well, you know, that, that wall has been broken down. But let me just say this. I don't give a flying flip as to where, and let me be clear, media folks, the NFL, the NFLPA, players, teams, coaches, owners, I don't care who they donate money to politically. Yeah. It's not a massive story to me. And I, I, and I, I'm not anti what happened with the voter movement. I'm not anti players speaking out, 
but the whole follow the money thing. So what are we supposed to do? Seriously now? Well, that boy, that that guy on the Buffalo Bills, I'm a big righty and that guy donated to Biden. He must be a son of a bitch. I can't root for that guy. Do we really have idiot fans out there that are taking it that deeply and that literally that you're you're all of a sudden not going to root for a team, a person, a league? Yeah. Because of, like all those people have already spoken. Now it's going to be, well, we're going to follow the money as to where, you know, uh, Arthur Blank uh, donated here uh, to political campaigns. And and okay great but what do we what the only thing that's going to come from it is more angst from people who want to create the angst over this so for god's sakes i don't care where they spend their money and please if you're unless you're an idiot you would have to realize that the nfl and the nfl owners who are all billionaires on the whole that they're going to spend money on both yeah. sides of the aisle because you don't know who's going to win so the the spending of money in situations like this isn't life and death it's business and oh by the way the nflpa is doing it as much as nfl owners are so shut up about it my whole thing is uh, like how you vote is sort of your business and if you want to share that with me that's fine like, right. i don't i mean i i i uh I don't know, like, like my biggest problem with this whole thing, and we'll, we're going to wrap up here, um, but my biggest problem with this whole thing is really just, you know, people tell you, like, vote, 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 and I'm all for that. I, I, I think everybody should have a voice. That's the process that we're all part of, and, you know, I think it's a good thing that voter turnout, at least it looks like, right, like it's higher this year than it's been in the past. That's great. But you can't tell people to vote. And then turn around and demonize them for the way they're voting. That's exactly like that makes right. that makes no sense. Like that makes zero sense. So you can't be the same person cannot be going on Twitter and you know posting like procedures for <laughs> for for registration and then turning around and telling you that if you vote this way, well then you're the most horrible person on yeah, earth. Yeah, yeah. It's just. And I just, and, and I think that this is sort of an offshoot of that. So anyway, all right. Appreciate you coming out, Gresh. Um, we will see you next week. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the, the fact that we were able to stay away from the election for a good 27 minutes or so. Right. Mine was a statement at the end. Drop mic. See you later. Thank you, friend. All right. Thanks, Gresh. And we'll get to our special guest right after this. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, now we're going to bring into the show one of my favorite people co from covering the NFL over the last 15 years, and honestly, one of the guys I've known the longest. And this guy was, when I was paid a Patriots beat writer way back in the day, I believe he was New England's college scouting director. Thomas, I want to make sure that I have that right. Um, so he is ex-Falcons GM Thomas Dimitrov. And uh, Thomas, always appreciate, uh, always appreciate the time with you, and it's great to finally get you on the show. Well, I'm glad to be on your show. And the, the former and the X idea is a little bit surreal to me, of course. But I do remember back to those days, man, I remember standing out 
at the senior bowl in those metal stands when it was quite cold and we would be talking about everything under the storm, uh, anything under the sky, of course, but I'm, I'm, uh, no, this is, this has been an interesting three plus weeks for me and, and I'm appreciate you having me on, on your show. Absolutely. Well, let's start there. W- what has this been like for you? Cause I'm assuming, I mean, God, the last time you weren't like on a team in the fall was probably what, like when you were like eight years old or something. That's probably at seven, probably seven years old. I mean, I, humbly can state that I've never been truly fired up to this point. So I, I know that's a long time. Um, yeah, I, I would say again, the way it went down, I was surprised. I wasn't, uh, again, I've said this uh, time and again, it wasn't like it's, um, it's, uh, uh, unprecedented that a general manager is fired during the season or in the first quarter of the season, but it's rare of course. And, you know, the fact that Dan and I got fired, uh, you know, at the same at the same time was, was just something that I wasn't sure that it was going to work that way. And it worked out that way. Ultimately, you know, Arthur Blank, who's obviously a very highly regarded owner. And in the end, his loyalty is, is so strongly directed towards the fan base in Atlanta and, and appropriately so. And he thought it was what was best for the organization and, uh, you know, and the Atlanta Falcon fan base to, to make a move with both of us. So uh, we moved forward on that. And now it's all about, I, I, I kind of, you know, phrase it this way. It's like never lower than solid and never higher than euphoric. And that sounds odd. I know. Meaning those are my waves of emotions that every mm. once in a while being euphoric, not because I, I mean, I love this. I love what I'm doing. Of course, I want to be doing this again and have another opportunity, but the freedom to be with my children and to have some free time after 13 years in this role and 27 years in the NFL, it, you know, it means something to me to really dive in and, and have some uh, rest and relaxation, so to speak. Was there stuff that you like, like, I don't know, like, like when it happened, I, like, I would assume there's like a period of shock you go through, right? Like, and then do you sit down and say, okay, like there are these things that I want to do before I start working again? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've thought about so many different things. I mean, I've thought about having another opportunity to, to build another championship caliber football team. And hopefully that time or next time being able to win a Super Bowl, of course, we mm-hmm. want to do that. Um, having an opportunity to um, potentially do, I don't know, there's other business opportunities out there that seem to be coming my way, business of sport opportunities. You know, those are interesting to think about uh, as well. You know, I, I just, I want to be open-minded to a lot of things that are coming my way. And I don't want to be uh, so anchored in on any one thing in particular right now. A lot of people have given me advice, of course, uh, and a lot of people have advised me in that first year to really step back and take it all in and spend some time here and there in a consultant role. It's not about money for me. I mean, I still have time left on my contract, of course, so that makes it um, a much more manageable manageable and navigable. You know, that's important for me, but I just want to continue to learn, grow in a lot of different areas, Albert, quite honestly. You know this. You're always on the go. How much you would love to be able to sit there sit there and read that many more books on us on a topic of mm-hmm. study yeah. is an area that i'd love to jump into for a while as well is there any like so are you reading a book now is there something that you're that you that you dove into right away or you know it's interesting my my good friend and 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 one of my my uh, valued mentors rc buford is good friends with ryan holiday and that whole obstacle is is the way and and stillness is the key stoicism I really want to, to study that a lot deeper. I'm a, I'm a big Tim Ferriss fan as well. And just trying to get in and, and step away from the, the myopic side of football for a bit 
and really see what else there is out there for me to continue to grow and learn. So those are some of the areas. The other area, quite honestly, I want to give him a, a really good plug right now is Greg McEwen. I don't know if you've ever read his his book on essentialism. And it's a fantastic book, although very, very basic and you know real and to the point. Um, I'm, I'm actually really appreciate the idea of essentialism because I think too many of us get tugged in so many different directions in today's world. If we can get a hold of that, I think that's something that can be beneficial to all of us. Okay, so what like what was something that like you have been able to do over the last few weeks that's cool that maybe like you wouldn't have been able to do in previous years because of everything? You know, obviously your job's kind of like taking you away from a lot. So like, what, what, what is there something that you've been able to do the last few weeks that you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise? Well, I think, you know, my fondness, we've talked about it before my fondness yeah. for the mountains and to get out to Colorado mid season, you know, that's rare unless it's on a bye week to actually be on a high mountain pass hiking uh, at kickoff time for the Minnesota Viking game. The first game that I was away uh, from football in, in many, many, many years um, that was again, odd and I use the word surreal again, but it was something that I don't get an opportunity to do that often being with my son today at the driving range for a little bit was important for me as well. You know, I just, I think making time for myself, working on mind, body and soul elements and family elements. And I think that's going to be really important for me. Have you watched much football? No, interestingly enough, I have not. I've, I've been really big on the highlights and, and such. And every once in a while, I, I turn a, I turn the, the TV on, but I turn the sound down. No offense to all your, your brethren out there <laughs> who are really good at, at doing their job. I just I don't care to hear a whole bunch. Um, this past weekend, we were, we were, uh, I was watching it on the Thursday night game, of course, and, and that was a little bit odd. I actually, Dan Quinn and I did a little bit of a virtual call in and around the time of the game and talked for a few minutes and caught up and we're hoping to catch up here soon. He and I have a great relationship. I feel like, you know, going into this whole thing that many years ago, six years ago, six and a half years ago, I loved that I was pairing with a guy that was all about making sure that he had one of the best relationships with a, with a general manager in not only football, but sport was his goal. And I knew that we were going to have a very good working relationship like I did with Mike Smith. Uh, Dan and I really developed a really good working relationship, which was so incredibly ideal for us. And we're able to talk and be sh- and be able to be candid about things. And I know we're going to debrief well here in the next few weeks. That's really interesting too, because like a lot of times when things do go the way that they went for for you guys, there is tension between the general manager and the head coach. So how do you think? Like, I think it's interesting. Like, I, I just think it's interesting that you guys were even like talking now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, cause sometimes, like, you know, this, like, that's not always the case, right? Like, so like, like, how have you, how are you guys able to navigate all this? Cause obviously like your job security for job security for both of you has been a topic for the last couple of years mm-hmm. and that can create that sort of tension. So like, how are you guys, and I'm not saying it's never tense, but like, how are you guys able to kind of keep it in a place where you know, two, three weeks after you guys are getting fired, you're on a Zoom together watching a football game. Well, look, first of all, we all know this. And the more you talk to anyone inside and outside of sport and, and leadership, communication is paramount. And if you if you can communicate uh, regularly and effectively and efficiently, I think that goes a long way. Dan and I were both guys who believe strongly in not sweeping things under the rug. That is really important for me. And it was very important for Dan. You, you combine that with the fact that we were both very, very interested in having a very, um, you know, 
again, communicative, real relationship and be able to share as much as we could. Of course, that's not always easy. You have egos involved and you have a lot going on, whether it's on the, the team building side, on the personnel side, whether it's on the coaching side. We committed to each other to be very honest as much as possible. Now, there are times and places, as you, as you alluded to, and there are op- opportunities to speak and other opportunities where you have to bite your tongue a little bit because it's just not the right place. I think it's having an understanding and an awareness of your partner in all this, i.e. the head coach or the GM for, for Dan, and to understand that we're both trying our best to do, do the best that we can together. So when things went awry, whether it was with personnel uh, in the building side of it or when, when it had to do with you know, uh, potential uh, coaching issues that were on the field on game day or whatever they were, we talked them through. We were very honest with each other, and I think that allowed us to understand that in the end, both Dan and I knew that we were side by side on all of this. And, and you know, we were true partners in this. I wasn't reporting to Dan. Dan wasn't reporting to me. We were, for the longest time, we were reporting to Arthur. Right. And this year, we changed that setup, which I know you all read about, mm-hmm. where Rich McKay came back into uh, the office basically after 11-year hiatus. And, and he was now Arthur's designee. So we both reported to, Arthur, to, to Rich McKay, who reported to Arthur. So it was, a, it was a different setup. And again, it continued to strengthen the relationship that Dan and I had, understanding that you know, there's always going to be ups and downs about it. But again, I'm proud of how it all played out. I'm proud that we can still be very close and continue to learn from each other as we navigate through the tough times of losing our jobs. I know this is a weird question. Did like I, like I didn't even think about this. Though. Did you guys go through it together? Did it actually happen? Like were you guys called in together? Um, we actually did. To, we, we actually did go in together. It was one of those situations um, that that uh, um, on that Sunday night. Uh, yes, we we went in together and uh, we talked to to Arthur and Rich together. And and uh, although again, you know, somewhat um, somewhat. Uh, uh, you know, un- uneasy. I think, you know, of course, everything was respectful. I have a great deal of respect for for Arthur Blank, of course. I mean, what he's done for me and my family over the years. I just wish, you know, in the end, you know, in the very end, he had to win the fan base back. I mean, that's, that's tough for me to imagine because we did not win games uh, the last two years, of course. And coming into the third year, it was complicated. And, and he had to make a hard decision. He has a great deal of respect and, and fondness for for Dan, not only as a coach, but as a person. Uh, I like to think he does for me as well. So it's not something that's easy for an owner. I do understand that after, especially after 13 years in my situation. Um, we've had conversations and I really appreciate uh, the honesty that we've been able to have with each other post uh, termination. Okay, I wanna ask you a couple more questions about your your personal situation, then we'll move on to, to kind of the, the league stuff. Um, do you like, I know a lot of people sort of viewed the Super Bowl as sort of, you know, a turning point for you guys. Um, do you think that that was part of it or is that overblown? The idea that like the team that that really left a mark what happened that night in Houston. Um, do you, do you believe that there was sort of an effect to that, that maybe kind of lingered for you guys for, for a long time? Or, um, do you think that everybody sort of overblew the, the, the effect that that had on the actual people in the building? You know, Albert, I, I thought about that earlier on, obviously, right after 16 going into 17. Of course, Dan did a hell of a job uh, and the team did a hell of a job, you know, coming into the into the 17th season, playing really, really strong and getting deep into the playoffs. Unfortunately, we came up short, you know, and, and down the stretch in 17. 
after that, um, you know, I was trying to navigate that to find out where we were going. We had a really complicated season the next year in 18, uh, 19 followed up with another losing season. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't something that along the way we even talked about anymore past 16 and into 17. Um, uh, that's why I was surprised. I thought it was way in the, in the rear view mirror at that time. I often refer to it as, you know, probably most recently as in that, with that idea, the, the sort of symphonic, uh, analogy that I've talked about a number of times over the last few weeks, you know, a bunch of really good, talented musicians slash players in different parts of a symphony, you know, but but one game, one one group is going to play really well. Another group is going to play subpar. Another group is going to play mediocre. Another group is going to thrive. Like it wasn't coming together for some reason and hadn't come together with all pieces playing together. And that's complicated to discern why. And we looked good and hard at it. And I, I hope we continue to talk about why that is and, and what happened there. But in the end, you can't be a championship caliber team if things aren't in sync. And unfortunately we were not in sync down the stretch. I don't know where you're philosophically on this, but do you have any regret from your 12 years in Atlanta? I have no regrets. 12 plus uh, 13 years. You know what? 13, give me 13. Yeah, I'll 13. take 13. I'll always <laughs> 13, take 13. Sorry. No, uh, you know what? I look at that. I have no regrets. The only thing that I have thought about quite a bit, and I've mentioned this as well, all of my life prior to being a general manager and being in scouting, uh, I always thought that I wanted to be like the, the baddest ass defensive coordinator in the national football league. Like I love defense. It's what I played. It's what I enjoyed being around. I wanted a, you know, gnarly rogue, tough, grind it out defense and then have a really good offense around it. Well, uh, interestingly enough, uh, we had two really good defensive coordinators as head coaches here while I was here. And for some reason, um, with, with, you know, wh what I really wanted and what I know that they wanted, we never ended up in, in both regimes having that top notch defense that I thought we were going to have. It's a complicated thing. And it's probably for another podcast, putting together a team and drafting for a defense when you are changing, uh, staffs and changing schemes and changing coordinators mm -hmm. makes it really complicated versus having an offense that you can build with, like we did over many, many years that were really directed toward Matt Ryan and how we did things. There was so much consistency on the offense. Um, but as I look back, not as much consistency on the defense, which in the end, when you ask regrets, I just wish that we had that defense that I had envisioned having uh, many years coming into this league. The other thing I thought about, and this will be the last thing on this. Um, I, I thought about like how, you know, one of your best friends in the business, you know, Scott went through this, I think what seven years ago and how like he sort of leaned on you and then he winds up working for you in Atlanta. And, um, you know, I know that that's the way it works a lot of times that kind of, you know, people kind of go back to their roots and, and, and talk to people they know you have so many people out there, Thomas, you know what I mean? Like guys who worked for you, like Les Snead and Dave Caldwell guys you worked with in new England, you know, like Jason light and John Robinson. Um, you know, how much have you sort of, you know, kind of touched base with those guys, um, over the last, um, over the last few weeks. And, um, you know, how much have, how much do you think that network is going to help you now, um, that you are in the position that you're in? You know, that's a good question. I mean, I've, I've heard so many stories and I'm sure you have from a lot of general managers upon their, their getting fired. And some people take it where they completely step away and they distance themselves. Other people continue to stay in contact. 
I think mine, I tried to approach mine with all that in mind, knowing what my personality was and what was right. I did not want to force anything. Those first five or six days, um, I was, of course, inundated with a lot of really thoughtful texts, and, and I appreciated them beyond. That's a warming feeling and a, and a connected feeling. And, and quite honestly, some of the people that didn't reach out, and I know that's natural. Some people just don't know what to say, or if they were putting themselves in that uh, in that spot, um, they they in the end would would say, "Look, I don't want to be bothered." For me, the people that didn't reach out to me, and there's a number of really close people that I had who didn't necessarily, you know, uh, send a real thoughtful, deep seated text. I reached out to them and told them a, a number of these people that I know in and out of the GM role how I appreciated being around them over the last 13 years and developing the friendship. That's important to me. I'm not going to sit back here and wait for people to reach out to me. Uh, I'll do it with tact, of course, but that was important for me to make sure that I did continue to connect and say, look, I'm not looking for a job. Any, any, uh, anything I left, any, any message I left or any text I left about trying to connect with someone, Albert, I started with that. This is not about me looking for anything. I'm just, <laughs> I just want to say thanks for the ride because 13 years humbly is a long time. And I appreciate a lot of the people that I've developed some great friendships with. Okay. Um, one of the reasons I want to have you on is because it is trade deadline day when we're recording this. It'll post on Wednesday, but it is Tuesday afternoon right after the trade deadline. And since you were in the thick of all of this over the last, um, over the last couple of months, at least, um, and you understand the dynamics going into it, um, why do you think it was quiet this year? Like you look at it now and there were a few names that moved. Um, you know, you had Avery Williamson going from the Jets to the Steelers. You had Desmond King going from the Chargers to the Titans. But for the most part, it was relatively quiet. Um, you know, when you look at that and, 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 and you've got, you know, the 30,000 foot view of it. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think it was quiet this year? Well, look, I mean, first of all, I mean, I have my strong feelings about trading and I am, I'm not saying vehemently a trade to, uh, uh, against trades in season. You know, I'm definitely not opposed to trades during drafts. We, we know that's we can yeah. put that aside, of course. I'm just not a big person. I'm not a big fan of trading in season because I think there's so much involved there, right? You, you're, you're sending certain uh, messages to your team, which is one thing that is a very, very big um, decision to make as far as trading someone, moving someone away, or even adding someone in season to a roster that is pretty strong and stout together. And you, you're adding someone from the outside who doesn't know your building well, doesn't know the, the, the um, I, I guess you could call the machinations of the way things are running within the organization. So that can be precarious for sure. I think you also don't know if you're getting someone who is com completely uh, healthy. I mean, that's one of the things that we think about all the time. You're not, you know, there's, there's a lot to do with what, how, how it plays into the finances, which I think, back to your initial question, finances have a lot to do with it this year. We don't know the precariousness of the, the salary cap, what next year is going to bring post-COVID. There are a lot of uncertainties there that I think a lot of people are not sure if they want to really dig into something that could be a really tough financial situation um, or you know, either moving someone or acquiring someone. So I think that had to do with it. I really do believe in today's world, however, with the, the youthful general managers, so to speak. I mean, my God, I, I used to be one of those guys who was at, you know, right at the 40 year now. I mean, here I am 54. I feel like the senior or one of the seniors there. There is something about that younger group. We've talked about it much more ready to be on the edge of their seat, making moves that I do see. 
Um, I think that that is something that is is interesting to watch how everyone's consider considering the idea of not for long in this league. They better get things done right away. Um, but again, given where we are financially, I think that has played into it this year more than some of the other years. A lot of lot of seventh, what fifth to seventh round picks exchanged. Uh, correct. Mm. It, it wasn't like you said there weren't yeah, big names. Not, yeah. Yeah. And I just I think in the very end, I will I will add this just from a perspective standpoint. Every year that it came around to trade time, even though I had these very strong feelings, you know, usually against the idea of doing it, I did my due diligence with the right people. It started off, quite honestly, way early, early in the summertime when I looked at who was possibly out there that might be up for trade, a compensation or consideration and compensation. And not only on our team, but from another team, I would spend time with our cap and contract people and really dig in to see where it was financially before I even entered the, the discussion with the head coach. Once I started talking with cap and contracts and then started dealing with, with the head coach, talking with our staff, the personnel staff a little bit, and keeping it fairly tight. Of course, at that point, I would add, you know, add the owner in and talk to Mr. Blank about the opportunities that were out there given the players the messages that we're sending, but also the finance, financial implications of it all. At that point, you start building closer and closer, at least we did, uh, to when when uh, trade time was. And we would more than likely move on from it because it was just too uncertain for us to make moves, at least since I had been there uh, since 2008. So, like, like, let's take the Mohamed Sanu like deal then as an example, that was one that was sort of a slow burn over time too, right? Like t dealing away somebody. Cause you guys had considered that before. Like, like you said, like a lot of times these deals can be a result of six, seven months of thought, right? Right. Well, I mean, Muhammad Sanu, I mean, that was one, there were a lot of teams, a number of teams that were really interested in him and we were coming into, into last year and we were really, really focused on, you know, having the, the best offense that we could have. And we, at that point, really felt like, you know, Muhammad prior to trading that we, you know, we were really interested in making sure that he was a part of it. And that was, that was, a, that was a complicated thing for us. In the end, it, it worked out in our, in their favor now, in our favor at the time, we were able to acquire through that move, of course, the second round pick we used for Hayden Hurst, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, uh, dealing with Baltimore with, you know, Eric DaCosta and I got talking at the combine last year. The point is, Trades are big. When you move people out of your building, uh, it's tough because you are sending certain messages, not only to your offensive team, but your fan base, your owner. And you want to make sure that you never are perceived as 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 uh, being on the ropes and, and bowing out. That's something that I have a really difficult time with as well, because that sends massive messages to a lot of different people that could affect your winning in the future. I was actually thinking about that, too. Like, how cognizant are you of how the message it sends to your team? Because... You know, they're not like, you know, you want them to focus on their job and everything else. But to some degree, I like, you know, they're not living under rocks, right? Like they know, like, and they're, they're seeing what's on social media and they're seeing what people are saying and everything else. And so like, how cognizant are you of like, we don't want the locker room to like take this as us waving the white flag on the season. Or maybe you look at the benefit of bringing a guy in as this is going to show the team that we really all are all in for this year. Well, look, I, that's a big thing for me. I mean, uh, look, you know, coming from the Patriot paradigm, of course, I mean, that was drilled into our heads by, by, you know, Bill and Scott and the importance of the locker room and the importance of, 
um, you know, making sure that we were all on the same wavelength. I mean, I grew up with that, quite honestly, from the day I was born and, and born into football, the idea of the team and making sure that we're doing things right uh, in the right way for the team, because the message that it sends is that, you know, you're 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 bowing out. That that goes a long way. And it doesn't only go, you know, it doesn't only go for that year. It goes beyond that. All of a sudden, you know, you very easily as team builders could be perceived as, you know, as maybe, I don't know, bowing out or not, not being gritty enough and not, not having the long, long vision. That's something that I would never want to be a part of. And I know that Dan in this situation would never want to be a part of. So we were always very, very, very mindful of that. And, and as, as well to, to uh, Mr. Blank's credit, I mean, you want to talk about an incredibly uh, competitive person. I mean, that was never in, in his vocabulary. And, and I appreciate that. Okay. Um, so, like, when you deal with somebody like Sanu, then how did you guys handle that with the locker room? That'd be the next question, you know. Like when you when you deal a guy in season like that, because that could be interpreted a certain way. Like, how did you and Dan handle that? Well, in our situation, uh, that was something that we reached out to a few people, of course, and Dan mostly as a coach. I think that was important for him. Of course, I will always talk though he's not, of course, running the organization in Matt Ryan, but because of my relationship with Matt as, you know, as a quarterback and a, an important part of this football team, um, I, think, I think the biggest thing for us was making sure that we uh, acknowledged that it wasn't easy and we also acknowledged to the right people um, and the appropriate people that, you know, in our minds needed to really know um, that what we were doing, not asking for permission, of course, never in that way, respectfully, but more making sure that we were informing so that people were aware. The last thing, you know, we wanted were people like, you know, Julio Jones and Matt Ryan and, and, you know, Alex Mack and some of the, you know, uh, uh, Jake Matthews, some of the, the pillar players not knowing what was going on with our football team. I've always felt that that was important. Again, not dictating what we've done, but that they know what we are doing and, and having some idea of why. Okay. Um, last thing before we get you out of here, let's just look forward a little bit. Um, how do you like? How do you plan on reengaging to football? You said you're watching a little bit now, but maybe not the way you did. Do you have a plan for how you're going to reengage to start watching again? Start maybe paying a little closer attention to what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I set out to to, to really take a month to pull away. I mean, I'm still, of course, watching, and I'm still I'm still digging into the news clips that I need to dig into. I was quite far ahead in my, my preparation for the draft already. Of course, that is very uncertain at this point. We know it as far as who's out and who's not, but I feel like I've, I've made some really good headway that way prior to, to my termination, which, which felt, felt good. And I continue to, I will continue to grow there and, and focus on that. As far as free agency, I'll continue to have access and continue to do work on uh, making sure that I'm current. And that's going to be important for me, whether it's, you know, whether it is having an opportunity to go somewhere else, whether it is in a, in a sort of a consultant role or whether it's something bigger, as I said, I would like another opportunity to be a part of building a championship organization, championship caliber organization. Um, and, you know, with that's going to take a lot of a lot of work on a lot of different levels. Of course, if I ever do get have any opportunities to do anything in the media in the interim, I want to make sure that I am. Uh, versed in what's going on. And, and I, so I, I know that I need to keep current. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is, you know, from a, from a business slash sport standpoint, um, as I've mentioned, some really close contacts with, 
with you know some of the the international leadership group and other other sports is something that I'm I'm really interested in continuing to learn about whether it's with RC Buford or Brian Cashman uh, with the Yankees and RC with the Spurs or you know David Brailsford in international cycling with Team Ineos some great conversations with a lot of really talented people that I want to continue to grow and learn and hopefully that'll help me out the next time uh, at the helm if ever given that opportunity. What's the best thing you've learned in the last three three weeks? What's the biggest thing you, you like you would take like just and I know it's a short period of time and you know, all of that, but if there's something you picked up like in a book or something you picked up talking to somebody or something you just learned being in this situation, what would you say it is? I would say the incessant tug on my time can cease. I mean, man, <laughs> I will tell you, there's always someone knocking at a door, literally and figuratively speaking, as a general manager at so many levels. And when that's not even the case and you're on your way home and you jump into the house, either someone's calling you, whether it's an agent or, or media or something is going on, you always have to be on. And I think having the opportunity to pull away and, and looking at my, my iPhone right now and seeing all kinds of white space is massively appreciated at this point. It's funny too, because I remember hearing that, like, uh, I think it was... It might have been Sean McVay. Like I can't remember who it was, but it was one of the, like it was a coach, and he said the best piece of advice he got when he got his job was that he had to be able to shut the door and lock and just be able to have like a period of time during the day where he could do his job because like like you said, like in those positions you have so many tug so many people tugging on you that you need to kind of give yourself time to do your job. And I thought that was such an interesting thing to like kind of think about because you always hear that with head coaches and general managers, you know, that like the thing that you aren't prepared for is all the stuff that comes across your desk that you aren't expecting. Right. So I thought well, I that's interesting that you kind of put it that way, you know, it's a, it's a great point. And I, you know, I've never been, um, um, fortunately I've never been a, a, an ADHD person or an ADD person, but I am convinced now after 13 years as a general manager that there's this, there's this, uh, NFL GM imposed ADD thing that has to happen because, you know, they say multitasking is really bad for your brain. The more I'm reading right now, because it just, it ends up being uh, sort of more, more um, uh, issue laden than, than not. So if you can, if you can't stop multitasking and you're trying to focus in multi different levels and different places, you'll never be the master of, of what you need to master. And, it's one of the things that I'm trying to read read about now. I don't know how you necessarily, you know, completely take care of that because we all have some element of it. But if it rules your life and you are always flying around, this comes back to my interest in essentialism. Man, I just don't think you can be as good as you can be if you're if you're tugged in forty different directions. So it's like kind of like untangling your wires, then, right? Untangle like, your wires, right? So you're yeah. ultimately focused on what is truly essential to be a winning GM and a winning head coach. Dan and I have similarities in that way because we want to make sure that we reach out and, and, and accommodate a lot of different people. It's not always the best thing. Okay. Last thing. Ideally, four or five months from now, Thomas Dimitrov is where? Four or five months. That, that, puts, me, uh, that puts me in the spring, right? Yes. Wow. I, you know what? It, it, I would love to have an opportunity, like I said, to to talk to someone about the next the next job in the NFL. But if it's not and it's it's and it's and it's prolonged, then I will be continuing to focus on whether it was a draft at that time and make sure that I'm continuing to keep myself sharpened and and focused on 
the building of, you know, of, of this league. And I want to continue to evolve. I want to continue to, again, be a part of the people that I want to help out as well, whether that's, you know, whether that's league related or whether it's other team related uh, as well, more than anything, be around my, my, uh, my kids and my, my fiance is going to be very, very important for my sanity over the next few months. It's funny because like you bring that up and like I just when you when you t- started talking about the draft, I kind of thought about like all those stories about like I think it was like the VW bus you had right like back when you were like an, an area guy and like I like I'd imagine like all of those memories probably kind of like those are things you probably thought about like right like that like the kind of that climb up and all the stuff that you did when you were younger. Well, look, I will leave you with this. I mean, I I had some amazing videos when you know hand ca- hand cams and I put one on my on my VW bus during a whole season. And uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. And when I look back on it, it was that many years ago. It might've been 20 plus years ago. And I uh, can only imagine watching it right now and how, how crazy it was because there were so many ups and downs of traveling, you know, thousands and thousands of miles. And, and again, I've always said, I mean, I loved being a road scout. There was something about being a road grunt that really, you know, uh, sort of strummed my chords um, and I look at it now and I think about some of those great times and the great people I met along the way, not only at the college level, but again, a lot of the, the scouts that are either working for Atlanta now or the people that I deal with, it's, it's where, it's where it all starts, right? For most of us, at least on the personnel side and what an, an amazing opportunity to, to get around some really great people. The last thing I'll leave you is you think about those early days with me. I was out there with some of the, some of the the groundbreakers in scouting because I was very young in this business when I started around some of those guys that were the former coaches or former players that got into scouting. That was a completely different world. We could go on, on and on for, for days talking about some of those characters. Um, we, we all often talk about it when we sit in those draft rooms. Oh yeah. I mean, well that, I mean that Cleveland staff, <laughs> right? Like that Cleveland staff with Ozzy and, and Scott. And I mean, like, like, it's just, I mean, it's amazing to look back at that group and, and how many people came out of there, you know? Very true. Okay. He's Thomas Dimitrov and I, and I hate doing it to you again. I got to refer to you as former Falcons GM. I did feel bad by the way, when I, when I first said that I was like, God, I like, like kind of like sucks to have to refer to him as that, but he is the former general manager of the Atlanta Falcons. TD, I always appreciate the uh, conversation. Thanks for coming out today. As always, Albert. Thanks so much, brother. All right. Well, thank you to Thomas. That was fantastic. Uh, like I said, he and I go back a ways and um, it started to happen to see what happened a few weeks ago, but definitely good to catch up with him here on the podcast. And with that, we're going to jump right into our fantasy DFS segment for the week. Always, as always, brought to you by DraftKings. And that means bringing in Michael Fabiano of SI.com. And Fabs, here's where I want to start with you. This is a really, really weird week in the way that it's going to start with the Niners situation. So um, if you have any advice, because I think as we're recording this, we still don't know what's going to happen mm-hmm. on how to handle this from a fantasy perspective. What would it be? Load up, man. I mean, I'm in some leagues where I picked up Dexter uh, Williams and, and Dexter Williams wasn't even available in some of the platforms that I was playing at the time. So I'm picking him up with the Niners. It looks like it's going to be Jermichael Hasty, Jarek McKinnon was limited last week in terms of the snaps that he played, although he scored more fantasy points. To me, it's Hasty, and the matchup's great. Green Bay's terrible against the run. So assuming that we actually get this game uh, on Thursday night, Hasty's in the flex starter conversation. 
And then Williams and, and Tyler Irvin will probably split some of that workload. But if I had to pick between the two, it would be Dexter Williams and he would be in the flex starter conversation as well. But the fact that we're starting practice squad guys right now in <laughs> fantasy leagues is telling you all you need to know about how challenging and difficult this season has been with injuries and COVID and backfield committees have made it even worse. So it's a tough time not to have Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams because both of those guys have been playing lights out. Now uh, you're likely leaning on a practice squad player in your fantasy lineup, but welcome to 2020. It's so weird too. Cause I think we all anticipated this, but like nothing can like truly prepare you for what it's like until you're actually there. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and now we're there. Yep. Um, all right. So let's jump into your DFS uh, bargains and fades for the week. What do you got for us? So I like Matt Ryan against the Broncos at $6,400 and Derek Carr, who last week had a stinker, but weather was a big time issue. He had been pretty good prior to that game. So uh, I like him at $5,700 and then Drew Locke looked pretty good in the second half of last week. Atlanta's defense is bad at uh, $5,200 at running back DeAndre Swift, Justin Jackson, who looks like the top back in Los Angeles that could change on a week to week basis, but he's a good play at five grand. And then Matt Breida, Assuming he's the starter at $4,000, although Brita was not at practice on Wednesday. So with Miles Gaskin out, he is the guy to add. But right now, we're not sure uh, exactly who will be the starter. It looks like it will be Brita. Uh, Jerry Judy, John Brown, and Hunter Renfro are all really good sort of under-the-radar plays. Any wide receiver against Seattle is worth a look. And Brown's only $4,600 at tight end. Hunter Henry, John M. Smith, who's been a disappointment, but he's down to $3,900. And then Logan Thomas against the Giants at $3,700 is a good play. Uh, some of my fades, Ryan Tannehill against the Bears. He's just too expensive. The matchup's not great. Teddy Bridgewater against the Chiefs. Phillip Rivers, who's been really good in his last two games, but it was Cincinnati and Detroit, right? Now you got the Ravens at $5,600. I'm going to pass. Here's one I can't believe I'm actually about to say, Albert. Zeke Elliott at $6,600 against Pittsburgh. I am actually telling people to sit him in redrafts. I never thought in a million wow. years I'd be – their offense is terrible. <laughs> Whether it's Garrett Gilbert or Gilbert Grape or Cooper Rush or Cooper <laughs> Cup, whoever the hell the quarterback is, not going to matter because the Steelers are going to load the line of scrimmage to stop Zeke. And he's done nothing since Dak has gone down. So I wouldn't play him in DFS. And if I have depth at redraft, I mean, maybe I'm going to sit him at the running back position. Todd Gurley at $6,200 is too much. And then Jonathan Taylor. I thought he would be a beast once Marlon Mack went out. He had some good games, but now it's Jordan Wilkins. It's a three-headed monster. It's a hot-hand situation. Taylor's dealing with an ankle, too. So at six grand, I'm going to pass on him. Same thing with Robbie Anderson against the Chiefs at $6,300. Hollywood Brown, DJ Chark with Jake Luton starting for the Jaguars this week. Mark Andrews at tight end at $4,800 against the Colts. That one is a fade for me. So is Mike Kosicki uh, and Evan Engram who's going up against the football team at $3,900. And Ingram has really had a, a very low ceiling this season. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think. Like, and I just, I don't know, I'm like fixating on your Zeke point now. It's just, I mean, like you look at that, and it's not just Dak, it's the offensive line. I mean, the guys, they're rolling out there. I can't imagine what a Cleveland Browns fan would have said to you if I told you six months ago that in, in, in early November, Cam Irving was going to be the starting left tackle yeah. for the Dallas Cowboys. Listen, man, I mean, they're an absolute mess. And, you know, when you look at Zeke's numbers, too, again, 
You know, over the last three weeks, he's 28th in fantasy points among running backs, and he's not even in the top 40 in points per game. I mean, like, it's terrible. So, and the Steelers' defense, I know that it got gashed last week by J.K. Dobbins and Gus Edwards, but there is nothing to keep that Steelers' defense from loading the line of scrimmage to Zappazikio Elliott because Garrett Gilbert and Cooper Rush, whoever the quarterback is, they don't scare anybody. All right. Um, so, as everybody knows, Fabs is the author of the first, the original Stardom Sidham column. Now 20 years old, into his, going into his third decade. So every week here on the podcast, we like to get a few, uh, a few of those from him, a little flavor for what's in the column this week. So what do you got for us this week, Fabs? How good has Justin Herbert been? Jeez Louise, I mean, oh, every yeah. single week he's been bananas good. He's almost a must start at this point. Uh, so you're going to play him. Tom Brady also in play. I think Brady's going to be a start every single week the rest of the season. Uh, Matt Ryan, Big Ben against the Cowboys, and Matthew Stafford are starts. At running back, Chase Edmonds is a top 10 play this week. Clyde Edwards-Alaire is a RB2. The matchup's right. You do have to worry about Le'Veon Bell. Neither back has done anything since Bell joined Kansas City, but I'd still play the Clyde. Antonio Gibson, David Johnson, Justin Jackson uh, all starts this week at the running back position. I like Justin Jefferson this week. Stinker last week. Uh, Green Bay used Jair Alexander on him, and uh, the Lions, well, they don't have Jair Alexander, so Jefferson should have a nice game. Any Steelers wide receiver, uh, especially Deontay Johnson, Chase Claypool. I'd play Antonio Brown. He's back against the Saints. Terry McLaurin's a very good play against the Giants. Cole Beasley against the Seahawks. No team in the league has given up more fantasy points to slot receivers. Uh, TJ Hawkinson, Rob Gronkowski, Noah Fan, Eric Ebron all goes at the tight end position at quarterback. I'm fading Phillip Rivers. And Drew Brees has burned me twice. And instead of saying, okay, Drew, you got me twice. I'll start you this week. I'm going to be stubborn and say I'm not playing them again against Tampa Bay. Their defense has been pretty tough. Just ask Aaron Rodgers. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater, Daniel Jones, Tua Tagovailoa, also on the bench. At running back, I said it, Zeke Elliott on the bench. Jonathan Taylor, Devin Singletary also uh, should be faded this week. Gus Edwards and James White uh, should also be on your bench. At wide receiver, DJ Chark, I don't love this whole new quarterback situation with Gardner Minshew out and Jake Luton in. Uh, and Houston's defense can be tough against number one wide receivers. Devontae Parker's a fade. So is CeeDee Lamb, sadly. Darius Slayton's a fade. And Corey Davis, who had a great game last week, much tougher matchup against Chicago at tight end. Hayden Hurst is going to be active in most fantasy leagues, but Denver's been very tough against tight ends. Mike Gesicki, Dalton Schultz, and Trey Burton uh, all off of my radar this week. Guys that you should have on your bench. Okay, special shout out to Fabs for two reasons. Number one, he, he got me with the Johnny Smith thing because that's been painful for me. I had high hopes for Johnny Smith, but then he came back around and hooked me up and said I can start TJ Hawkinson. That's my other tight end. So thanks he for that. He should be your Matt. guy. Yes. Yeah. Without Kenny Galladay, the matchup's right against Minnesota. Yep. Hawkinson, he hasn't had like a huge ceiling, but his floor's been like nine points, Albert. And this right. year at tight end, if I get nine points, I'm kind of happy about it. Even in a PPR league, it's not bad. And second reason for the special shout-out to Fabs, thank you for fighting through my Australian Shepherd going crazy in the background as the landscapers got That's all right, because my golden retriever is barking and he's squeaking his toy outside the door here with the kid who's 10 years old and broke his wrist over the weekend. So oh, I'm dealing with that, too. I mean, yeah, it's not bad enough we're all working from home and the kids are at home and they need help with their schoolwork. Now i got to dress the kid. i got to help him brush his teeth because – 
Uh, he's a one-armed man at this point. Welcome to 2020 once again. But right. hey, yeah. it is we what it is, man. The, we started with the realities of the NFL in 2020, and now we're going to the general reality of 2020 <laughs> exactly. at right. home. At home, always appreciate it, Fabs. Thanks for coming out. Take care, my friend. And we will be right back after this. All right, thanks to Gresh, thanks to Thomas, thanks to Fabs. Fantastic show this week. We're going to wrap it up like we always do with the six-pack. You guys know how this works. Every week I put the call out for questions on Twitter. I got a lot this week, and you can check some of those out in the mailbag. You can check some of those out in the video mailbag, and we're going to answer some of them right here on the six-pack. When I do put that call out for questions, I pick six for the podcast. I pick those six um, this week as well, and... If I pick the pick yours, you get a like on Twitter. You also get an answer here on the pod. So we're going to start with question number one from Jackson Brown the fourth at Go Blue Forever three. Not sure about that handle. If Trump wins, unlikely, but you still got to consider it. Will teams protest by not playing this week? Uh, Jackson, I don't think so. Um, my guess would be that it's possible that you might have some teams not practice. Maybe, um, maybe. Um, but I can't imagine that you're going to have anybody walking away from a paycheck for it. Um, and that's part of like the mosaic of this whole season with COVID and everything else um, on a week to week basis. You know, we're talking about contact tracing. We're talking about positive tests. We're talking about all of this different stuff that can waylay the schedule. And to this point, it's we're still on track to get 256 games played in 17 weeks, which would mean everybody gets paid for the full season. Um, but I think because of the prospect that, that we might not get there or that it's possible that maybe some teams play 14 games, some teams play 15 games, whatever the case may be, I think there's a different value on your paycheck. So I can't imagine that players are going to be walking away from game checks um, to make a statement in that way. I'd be surprised. Question number two from Danny. That's at bet the over 85. <clears throat> More likely to keep their job, Lynn or Zimmer? It's a good question, uh, Danny. I think both guys are really good head coaches. Let me start there. Um, and I'm not sure that on balance either of them deserve to get fired, but I do know how this goes. Um, and I, I would say based on the contractual situation, Anthony Lynn might be in a little more trouble just because 2021 is a contract year for him. Zimmer just signed an extension. Um, but I don't think Zimmer's completely safe either. Um, and I think part of the decision-making process with the Vikings is going to be what they do with their older core. Try to trade some of those guys before the deadline. And I think moving forward, your question is going to be, okay, do we turn the page? And if we turn the page with Mike Zimmer's age, do we go forward with him as being the guy who's going to develop the next set of guys with him being the guy who's going to set the agenda, put the systems in for that set of guys? That's the question. And so I think it all really starts in Minnesota with what you're going to do with Kyle Rudolph, the Harrison Smiths, um, the Eric Kendricks, the Anthony Bars, the Adam Thielens, like that group of players, Kirk Cousins, of course. What are you doing with that group of players? How are you building it going forward? Where with Lynn, now the Chargers are entering, like we said with Crash earlier, this very critical window where they've got their quarterback on a rookie contract and you want to take advantage of that. So kind of different dynamics in each place. I would say Zim maybe a little... A little safer, but I, I think both are sort of in a 50-50 type of situation right now, halfway through the year. Question number three from uh, W Gas W Gaff at W Gas W Gaff one. Uh, who do you think is the best team in the NFC East? <sighs> I would say the best roster in the NFC East is probably the Cowboys if everyone's healthy. I'd say the best team right now is probably. The Eagles, 
it's it's tough though. I, like you look at where those two teams are, where they've been, the like health of their offensive lines. Obviously, I think it's a big part of the identity of each of those teams. That's problematic. I do think Prescott, Dak was Dak Prescott was playing better than Carson Wentz. So I think you have to take that into account. So I think the best team when they're healthy is the Cowboys. I think the team has proven it to be more resilient and maybe has a little bit better depth is the Eagles. And so I think the Eagles probably wind up winning the NFC East. Question number four from Mike Vincent. That's at Mike Vin, 940-39455. Always kind of like sketched out by people who have that many numbers at the end of their handle. What's the plan for the Pats at QB at next year and beyond? Uh, Mike, I, I, I don't know that they have uh, like set in the stone plan right now. I think a lot of it's going to depend on how Cam Newton plays. Um, they, there should be some options out there after the season. Um, you know, some of the younger guys, um, and like you could be looking at like, I mean, a Sam Darnold being available, maybe the Jets wouldn't trade him to New England, but um, you could be looking at, you know, like a guy like a Matt Ryan being available. So like there, there are going to be some interesting options out there. I think that with the hope right now is that Cam plays well for the next rest of the year and they wind up figuring out figuring out a way to keep him, whether it's in the franchise tag or on maybe a three or a four year deal. Um, but I, I think everything's still very much in flux and I think they'll very much be looking at next year's uh, draft class. And like I said, there will be some veteran options out there. So I would say the plan at QB right now is wait and see. Question number five from Al Cap. That's at Al 5252. What do you think about Daniel Jones? Is he the Giants' long-term quarterback? Well, part of that's going to depend on what happens with Dave Gettleman and how long Dave Gettleman's there because he's the one in the building who's truly invested in Daniel Jones. I also think Daniel Jones has shown reason to have hope. Like, I don't think that it's hopeless with Daniel Jones as the quarterback. Here's what I would tell you if in regards to next year's draft. The Giants right now have one win, so they are squarely in the race to be somewhere in the top five. If they have the first overall pick, Daniel Jones will not be a Giant in 2021. Um, Trevor Lawrence will be the quarterback of the Giants. If they have the number two pick, things get more interesting. And then you're balancing Justin Fields against Daniel Jones. Justin Fields is playing out of this world right now. Um, I think there's a good chance by the end of the year that we're saying, not that he's past Trevor Lawrence, but maybe that as the number two pick, he's a better prospect than a lot of guys who've gone number one overall. And so that's the sort of prospect you'd be looking at. And, you know, the other benefit of taking Justin Fields then would be that, you know, that, 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 that Joe Judge and his staff get to start on the ground floor with the young quarterback and you're resetting that rookie quarterback contract counter for yourself. And so... Um, yeah, I think a lot of it's going to come down to where the Giants are drafting. I don't think they're going to be drafting in the top two, so this will probably be a moot point, and, and Daniel Jones will probably be their quarterback in 2021. Um, but I do think that Trevor Lawrence at least, and maybe Justin Fields too, are good enough where you know I think that they would at least cause the Giants to think about moving on from Daniel Jones if they were drafting in one of those spots. And if you're drafting that high, that probably means Je- that Daniel Jones didn't light the world on fire either. Question number six, last question of the week from Zass. That's at Zass9382. Is the threat of a lower salary cap next season the reason why there weren't more trades made today, today being Tuesday? Uh, Zass has a huge part of it. We mentioned it off the top of the show. I think it's worth reiterating here that I think the lowered salary cap is going to have an effect on everything going forward. It's going to have an, it had an effect on the trade deadline. I think it's going to have an effect on free agency. I think you're going to see because of the lowered salary cap, a flood of veterans get cut. That's going to cause the market to be saturated. I think that the top of the market guys might not get paid the same way as a result of this. It's going to change the way that you're building your team going forward too. I think the value of draft picks kind of goes through the roof now because that's where your cheap 
talent comes from. So in every single way, the lower salary cap is going to affect the NFL. Trust me on this. You are going to see a change in the way teams are built over the next 12 months because of the salary cap, because the salary cap will go down. And how long that lasts, how long the effects last, really depends on how far out we're talking. Like, is this just a 2021 thing? Or do they get the new TV deals done? Do they find new ways to monetize gambling and sort of reset themselves and get them back, uh, get themselves back on an upward trajectory by 2022? We'll have to see on all of that. Appreciate you guys coming out. As always, I want your feedback. We need your feedback. We want to make this the best show that we possibly can. So first and foremost, rate and review us on iTunes. But you can also get to me one-on-one, get to me individually in the way that you do that. Go to me, go to all my social media channels, follow me, message me, whatever you got to do to get, 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 give me what you think, what you think we can do better. I want that sort of feedback from you guys at Albert Breer on Twitter, at Albert R. Breer on Facebook, at Albert underscore Breer on Instagram. And always remember to listen to all of our podcasts because we got a bunch of good stuff now in your podcast feeds. There's the MMQB podcast, which is the old school Peter King feed that has Gary's show and our gambling show on it. The Weekside Podcast with Connor and Jenny. Of course, my show, The Albert Breer Show. You can find us, all of us, on three different feeds on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys get your shows. Same time next week. I'll see you guys then.